ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, Selena Green with you today. Coming up, another fruit fly outbreak detected in South Australia. Find more about where very shortly. And why do farmers fear a trade deal with Europe could leave Australian agriculture worse off? It would not be commercially meaningful for Australian agriculture for nearly any commodity. And in actual fact, it would send some of our commodities backwards uh, to the position that they're in now. More on that to come. But first today, around $135 million will be invested in Australian research to develop higher yielding and more nutritious crops. The funding is going to allow the Australian Plant Phenomics Facility to expand its network of crop research sites to include every mainland state. Now, along with some funding partners, the project includes $60 million in core funding from the Australian Government's National Collaborative Research Investment Strategy. Richard Dickman is the Interim Executive Director of the Australian Plant Phenomics Facility, whose headquarters are hosted by the University of Adelaide. And I asked him to explain firstly, well, what phenomics actually is. It's a rapidly developing field that uses highly sensitive cameras, sensors and robots to rapidly and digitally measure plant structure and function. So... Yeah, why is that important? Well, that overcomes a major bottleneck in current plant science research. And that's because while plant scientists now have many tools to create new plant types, the process of physically monitoring and measuring the plant traits that come out is slow, laborious and inefficient. So it's about collecting better data much faster to accelerate the research process. And I understand this is a, a pretty growing or a rapidly growing field? Yeah, it is. APPF has been in existence for a bit over 10 years. And, you know, when the plant accelerator at Adelaide was built, it was like the, the largest and, and most advanced in the world. It's been developing around the world and it's really going in the general direction of digitising agriculture. They say that agriculture is one of the least digitised areas of our life and that's very true for the research process. You know, our researchers are still doing many things very manually with rulers, with test tubes, with uh, taking clippings of, of plants. You know, we have the, the potential to really through these sensitive cameras just directly imaging the plants and measuring all of those features much more rapidly. And you did touch on, on it there before, but the value of this type of work and research for plant breeders and scientists, but also ultimately for farmers and consumers at the end of the chain, what is that value? I mean, there'll be a few different things. First of all, I, I suppose the greatest and most immediate value will be about accelerating the breeding process to deliver more innovations uh, faster. So, you know, Again, there's a million wheat plots or grain plots that are planted around the country every year. Uh, so, again, if we can more rapidly and, and get more data out of those plots, that will actually accelerate the process. The second area is that we're going to have a set of facilities, and not just controlled environment, but semi-controlled fixed field sites and also uh, mobile sites. So 
this facility will allow the more rapid transfer of those great inventions out to farmers' fields. And, and finally, to some extent, we'll also be able to do different fundamental research that was not possible before. So I'll give one example, that is that we're going to have a set of root uh, phenotyping facilities across three universities that will allow us to image roots at the millimetre, centimetre and up to a metre in scale, in fact two metres in scale. So uh, pretty well like real life roots out in the field. And that's not been possible uh, in the past and that will drive understanding of this opaque and, and complex world that we've had you know, little view of in the past. So with this funding, and it is a significant amount of funding, as you say, it's initially a South Australian-based operation that you have. This will help spread the the sort of fingers of what you do further now as a more national network. That's exactly right. You know, during the first 10 years, we had uh, three nodes based essentially in, in, well, in the ACT and South Australia. So over the last uh, three years, uh, we've put together this vision of really creating a truly national network. And we discussed that with NCRIS, the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy. It's, it's an important federal government program that funds basic research infrastructure. And they endorsed our vision of creating this national network to the tune. Uh, they've come through with uh, $60 million in core funding. Now, that's going to be matched with funding from nine partners around the country. And when all of that funding uh, is confirmed, I mean, we, we, it will be confirmed. We're just in the process of, of dotting the, uh, the I's, so to speak. So we'll have nearly $135 million to spend uh, and to invest in these, in these facilities. Richard, we're talking at a time where we know that uh, we are looking at a future with a a, a rapidly changing climate. There will be large challenges for agriculture in terms of growing crops and and feeding a growing population. Do you see plant phenomics having a a, a big role to play in that type of future? Absolutely. I think um, we need to accelerate the rate at which we develop um, crops. I mean, there's, there's one example that people often talk about, the modern corn variety uh, you know, it, it started with these tiny little ears and over a period of 10,000 years, you know, humans developed corn into what we see today. We don't have 10,000 years to respond to these challenges. Things are changing at a very rapid pace. We have tens of years. Uh, so we need to use all of the techniques that we've got. As I said earlier, you know, there are many new uh, opportunities and possibilities for researchers to create new plant types but we also then need to test them in the field in many locations rapidly. And that's what uh, APPF will seek to do. Richard Dickman there, who's the Interim Executive Director of the Australian Plant Phenomics Facility. It's just going on 12 minutes past 12. Well, the Federal Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, has been in the far west of New South Wales this week talking on the bill that she's tabled. That bill extends the time frame for completing the government's Murray-Darling Basin plan by three years and allows buybacks to resume. All Murray-Darling River states except Victoria have signed on the dotted line. The Minister was in Broken Hill earlier today and spoke with Andrew Schmidt. You know, the really interesting thing uh, that has changed is I don't speak to any farmer now, you know, wherever they are across the system, that says to me they want to go back to a time before the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They want it implemented sensibly and sensitively, and that's what I want to do. I'm not out there with a big checkbook, you know, saying I'm going to buy whatever's offered and 
who cares about the consequences. That That is not my approach at all. Most people will now tell you they may have opposed the plan in the, in the past, but they know we have to do something to protect their livelihoods because they're part of a system to make sure that there's drinking water for the millions of people who get their drinking water from the river system. And they, and they also care about the environment. The idea that farmers don't care about the environment, that's not true. You know, many of them have been on their land for generations. They know it better, better than anyone. And they want to see uh, those 400-year-old trees and the, you know, bird breeding and all the rest of it. They want to see that protected. So I think working together, we can find a sensible and sensitive way through here, but we need to do it. And I think the, the problem that we've got is if you've got people for their own sort of political reasons say, oh, it's okay, it'll all be right. We, you know, we'll just keep going on the path we're going. We'll get there eventually. I actually did a little calculation. If we kept going at the rate we were going, we would achieve the Murray-Darling Basin Plan around about the year 4,000. I mean, you know. So it's been pushed out a few years now, but I just want to get back uh, probably a bit more local in terms of Menindee. And it's become a bit of a political football over the last 10 years where the Cotton lobby and the farmers would say, well, you've got all this water sitting in Menindee Lakes, which is shallow lake system, high evaporation. If you want to start finding water, take it out of there. What are your thoughts? Well, I think we need to be uh, sensible about the way that we approach this. And we're working really closely with the New South Wales government, the Victorian government, uh, because really Menindee is kind of where we make the transition from the northern part of the basin to the southern part of the basin. And we've seen uh, some pretty bad fish deaths uh, in Menindee, so we don't want to risk those sorts of bad environmental outcomes in the future. The Murray-Darling Basin Authority, the, the very reason we've got the agreement of all the states and the Commonwealth to have the Murray-Darling Basin Authority sort of making these decisions on our collective behalf is because there's so much, you know, everybody thinks that the people upstream are wasting water and downstream are ripping it off and all the rest of it. You you need an independent body to be making these decisions. And so uh, I don't, as the minister make the decisions. We, we get the scientists and the hydrologists and the, uh, you know, the people who are experienced at running the river system to make mm-hmm. the decisions. Is Menindee Lakes safe under your tutelage? Well, I'll, I'll be out there tomorrow um, making sure that I'm talking to people who are living on the, uh, on the lakes, people who've got an interest there. And uh, I, I hope the whole river system's safe. I really do think this is one of the most important uh, economic, environmental and social assets we have as a nation. We need to look after it properly. Mark Colton is the federal member of Cedar Parks. This is a National Party seat, which I'm sure you're well aware of. He put out a statement yesterday saying he finds it appalling that your government has seen fit to strip the protective mechanisms out of the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Well, it, it, I, I, I actually like and respect Mark Colton a lot, but I disagree with him on this. And uh, I think there are um, there are strong protections still in the plan, but more to the point, what is Mark Colton's solution here? Like the people who are saying we can't move forward on implementing the plan are the same people who have prevented action over the last decade. Like, we can't, aff- we're getting, Australia is becoming hotter and drier. We're going to have more droughts. They're going to last longer. We have to face that. We have to face that reality. And the idea that we can just carry on not delivering even the existing Murray-Darling Basin Plan, that's just people lying to themselves.
They're pretending that it's all going to be okay when it's not going to be okay. Um, The Bureau of Meteorology has already told us we're going into another El Nino cycle. We know that's coming. We know what that means. I've been to communities that had dry riverbeds for more than 400 days during the last drought. The kids were playing cricket on the dry river riverbed that should have had six metres of water above their heads. For, for more than a year, uh, those communities face those dry c- conditions. Are we really going to say to those communities, oh, it'll all be right, it'll all be right, mate. You don't have to worry. Nothing to see here. It's, it's just irresponsible to treat people in that way, to pretend that it'll all be okay when it won't. We need to take action now. And I'm not saying that when we fully implement the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, that'll be right, people will never suffer drought again. This is to keep a lifeline going through communities during those hot, dry times. There will still be tough times. What we can do is keep those communities and keep those uh, environments just going during the driest times. That is the Federal Minister for Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, speaking with Andrew Schmidt in Broken Hill. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Farmers are pleading with the Australian government not to sign a trade deal with Europe, suggesting it would set the agriculture industry backwards. The European Union is Australia's third largest trading partner and a two-way trade valued at close to $100 billion. Despite more than five years of negotiations on a potential trade agreement, National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson says the current offer on the table is a dud. Look, right now, as we know, the EU FTA has finished formal negotiations, but Minister Farrell in the next couple of weeks is heading to Osaka for the G7 trade ministers meeting. We know he's having meetings with his European counterpart on the sidelines, and we're really concerned that he is taking his signing pen with him and he is ready to ink a deal that is really a dud deal for Australian agriculture. Why do you think it could be a dud deal? And what would a dud deal look like? Well, at the moment, the offers on the table would actually put us at a significant disadvantage to farmers in in countries like Canada, New Zealand or, or South America. It would not be commercially meaningful for Australian agriculture for nearly any commodity. And in actual fact, it would send some of our commodities back Uh, to the position that they're in now. Can you elaborate on that? What is it that the EU is seeking? Well, signing up to the deal, for example, would impose geographical indicators on Australian farmers. Um, And as I'm sure everybody knows now, it's a different way of guaranteeing the quality of your products. Uh, It would impose between probably $70 and $90 million extra on Australian dairy farmers. Um, And it's a balance of trade that at the moment is very much in the EU's favour. They deliver way, way, way more product than we deliver to them. Uh, And this would just be cementing some of those conditions that really are, are not good at all for Australian farmers and would put us at a disadvantage. So what's your message to Don Farrell and the Australian government? Look, at the moment, um, we support Minister Farrell uh, maintaining his position that if it's not a good deal for Australian farmers, he needs to keep the pen in his pocket and walk away, stay at the table, keep talking. There's no rush to do this deal. It will be with Australian farmers for the next 50 years. Uh, It's too important. It offers too many opportunities for Australian farmers and for European consumers. We must take the time to get it right. Are you concerned about um, environmental regulation that could be imposed on Australian producers? 
Look, we've been very uh, honest and open with the Europeans about our sustainability frameworks that we have here in Australia, but we have to understand that they're very different to the European situation. Our production regimes are very different. So uh, at the moment, we do not want to have European systems imposed on us that make no sense at all to the Australian environment. You've seen a few trade deals inked in your time. Is this the most concerning? I think it's the most concerning because it's bad for nearly every commodity and it actually sends some commodities backwards. Uh, Normally in a trade deal there's winners and losers. It's really hard to see that there are any winners at all in this particular deal for Australian agriculture. Fiona Simpson there, who's stepping down as president of the National Farmers Federation this week. She was speaking there to Kath Sullivan. In a statement, Trade Minister Don Farrell said any deal with the EU must include practical benefits for Australian businesses, including improved market access for Australian farmers. And Fiona Simpson will be making an address to the National Press Club today. Well, Queensland fruit fly restrictions in the Riverland have been extended into early next year after a new outbreak was detected. One new Queensland fruit fly outbreak has been declared in Glossop, taking the number of outbreaks in the region to 45. Paul Dowsett, who manages the fruit fly response program for the State Department of Primary Industries, told Sophie Holder about the discovery. Maggots were found in oranges in Glossop and as a result of that we've declared a new outbreak which is called Glossop B. Um, That outbreak is outbreak number 45 so restrictions remain in place for the existing outbreak and suspension areas. Um, There hasn't been any outbreak area boundaries extended from the Riverland from the 10th to the 23rd of October 2023. Was this as a result of fruit found in a commercial or a backyard growing situation? Um, I think it's a combination of both. So it was basically a member of the community that has checked their fruit and found the maggot in the orange and has called our fruit fly hotline. It's unfortunate that we found the larvae, but it's great that we caught it before it transformed into pupae. This wipes out the entire branch of the fruit fly descendants. If anyone even slightly suspects that they've found larvae or flies, please report it as this information is so crucial in our fight against fruit fly. Will this change the timeline for when restrictions are expected to end at all? Yes, it does. The end date for all of the outbreaks is the 6th of January 2024. However, this might change if more flies are detected. How are the SIT releases going at the moment? Where are they kind of tracking along at? Um, SIT releases are in the Murtho, Bukpanong and Wanayara areas. and We're releasing about 40 million flies per week at the moment. And how's that been since the uh, output of that one has doubled? Yes, that's right. At the Port Augusta uh, Sterile Insect Technology Facility, we've increased the capacity to double and that has allowed us to increase the weekly capacity to 40 million flies per week. Um, We've also been receiving several questions from growers and from the public regarding the chemicals that are being used in the eradication program. What's being used and and where are they being used at the moment? We're using Natrilor which is an organic bait and it's used in the residential and some of the uh, commercial areas. It's non-toxic and it's certified as organic, which is safe for animals and people. And are there any concerns about fruit fly building resistance to these chemicals as we're nearing, you know, almost four years of the eradication program? Look, we're always um, on top of the program and at the moment we have the 45 outbreak areas, but nearly a third of them we haven't seen any detections in the last 12 weeks. So that's really good to show that our control measures are are effective and working. 
Paul Dowsett from Persa there speaking with Sophie Holder. The new date for the end of restrictions is now January 6, 2024. If you want to search your address on the interactive fruit fly map online to understand what restrictions are in place where you are, you can find that at fruitfly.sa.gov.au. It's 24 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and Hannah Marsh is our forecaster today. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Selena. Some pretty windy conditions around parts of the state today. Yeah, absolutely. We did have a change that moved through western districts yesterday afternoon, central districts overnight, and is now over the northeast pastoral district. And associated with that, the strongest wind gusts that we saw were 104 kilometres per hour at Cape Willoughby, 91 kilometres per hour at Strathalbyn, uh, 87 at High Marsh Island and 85 at Neptune Island. And as I mentioned, that change is now confined to the northeast pastoral district. And in its wake, we've still got uh, fresh to strong and uh, southwest to southwesterly winds. We've also got some areas of cloud and some isolated shower activity. But out of that, we have generally seen less than a millimetre. As uh, we move forward into tomorrow, we are expecting uh, some cooler air to push up over the southern agricultural area. So we'll see an increase in the shower activity. There is the possibility of seeing some small hail about the southern agricultural area as well. And also the possibility of seeing some isolated thunderstorms about the southeast of the state. There will still be a bit of wind around tomorrow as well through the northeast pastoral district. So areas of raised dust is possible in the far northeast. And we're looking at generally cool to mild temperatures in the south, grading to warm to hot in the north. So having a look at some of the temperatures for tomorrow, we're looking at 18 degrees at Sejuna, 16 for Port Lincoln, 17 at Wyala, 22 for Cooper Pedy, 21 at Woomera and also at Broken Hill. 19 for Renmark, 13 at Clare and Mount Barker, 16 for Murray Bridge, 14 and showers for Victor Harbour, 16 with a shower or two at Kingscote and 13 with showers at Mount Gambia. Then as we move into Thursday, we've got a high pressure system that extends a ridge to our south, which will see conditions stabilising. So we're really looking at a dry day, apart from some isolated morning showers about southern coasts and ranges. We're looking at a very cool start on Thursday. So the possibility of seeing some patchy frost, particularly uh, inland parts of the agricultural area. Uh, And then generally we're looking at cool to mild temperatures in the south, grading to warm in the far north and also the far west. Uh, Winds will be becoming lighter, uh, so we're looking at moderate to fresh southeasterly winds initially, but they will tend east to northeasterly, particularly in the west during the day. Then on Friday, we're looking at another mainly dry day. It will again be cool at first over parts of the southern uh, agricultural area with patchy frost. Uh, But otherwise, we're looking at a mild to warm day, grading to hot in the far west. The winds will be moderate uh, southeast to northeasterly, and they will shift southwest to southerly in the far southwest in the evening associated with the next change. That next change will move through the state on Saturday and we are looking at the chance of seeing a shower in the west and south of the state. 
temperature wise we're generally looking at mild to warm in the south grading to hot uh, in the northwest and the winds will be generally moderate northeast to northwesterly but that change will shift winds south to southeasterly in the south and west in terms of cumulative rainfall totals up until midnight Saturday, we're generally looking at less than two millimetres, so not a huge amount uh, expected with these systems, uh, but local falls of two to ten millimetres are possible about southern coastal districts, particularly on Wednesday and uh, further shower activity on Saturday. Thanks for that, Hannah. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Hannah Marsh there, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Looking at the Western Inland District of New South Wales for tomorrow, it's sunny in the Upper West and chance of raised dust in the far west in the morning and afternoon with southerly winds around 25 to 40 k's an hour. Overnight, the temperatures will get down to between 10 and 17. Daytime, they'll climb between 23 and 32 degrees. For the Lower Western District, partly cloudy tomorrow with south to southwesterly winds, 25 to 40 k's an hour. Overnight temps between 7 and 10. 10. Daytime temperatures between 19 and 23 degrees. It's coming on to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Oh, hi. Great to be here on this Tuesday. Got a very busy half an hour coming up. And do you love champagne? Turns out plenty of Australians do because we import millions of bottles of it every year. Now, the name champagne is linked to prestige and excellence. So what kind of lessons could South Australia's wine regions like the Barossa and McLaren Vale learn from champagne about protecting their region's name and reputation? And some South Australian winemakers have a big problem with oversupply. You know, maybe we have to go down the track of, I don't know, canned wines, anything. We've just got to give anything a try. I don't think the government will come in and assist us to get rid of that wine lake. We will go into next vintage for red wine in particular. Probably about two and a half times more wine than what we can sell. More on that and what could be done about it soon. But first, Chris McLaughlin is here with your news headlines. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon, Selena. The main UN agency for Palestinian refugees is warning fuel in Gaza could run out within days. The entry of aid trucks carrying medicine, food and water into Gaza has continued. However, the United Nations is concerned fuel hasn't been included in the humanitarian deliveries. The Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has conceded the government's push to ban live sheep exports is affecting market confidence. Federal Labor has committed to phasing out the trade after the next election. Farm groups are strongly opposed to the ban and have warned it will cause irreversible harm to the sector. The state opposition wants the government to stop a payroll tax for general practitioners in fear of its impact on SA's healthcare system. It says the tax will significantly add to the cost of visiting a GP and discourage patients from getting a treatment. An amnesty applies on the tax until mid-next year, which the state government says gives time for GP clinics to come into compliance with payroll tax obligations. A South Australian Indigenous group says a memorial should be established in honour of the remains of ancestors unearthed at an Adelaide housing construction site. The remains of at least 27 Indigenous people were found in the Riverley housing construction site. They're believed to be Ghana ancestors who were buried prior to colonisation. More ABC News at one o'clock. 
Thanks, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Well, Australian winemakers and exporters have gathered online to hear more about well, the next step of a potential five-month review into China's current tariffs on Australian wine. A briefing was held to discuss Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's recent announcement. Australian Grape and Wine hosted the event and CEO Lee McLean said it gave everyone a good opportunity to talk about well, what happens going forward. It was an opportunity for, for the industry to to ask some questions about who was doing what. Um, so we had the opportunity as Australian Grape and Wine to talk about the fact that we will be helping with the uh, with the provision of information into that, that investigation. Uh, so that was that was fine. Uh, we talked about the timeframes uh, and uh, and uh, and what we can expect over the next little while. So it was it was really quite quite a straightforward briefing, and it was good of the government to allow the opportunity to have an industry briefing to to allow people to ask a few questions. What was attendance like? Yes, yeah, so we had we had uh, it, I didn't quite catch the figure, but it was certainly upwards of four hundred from across the across the country. So that was a good turnout at short notice. Um, it, it clearly indicated that there was a fair bit of interest in in this issue. Uh, we know it's been a very difficult period for a couple of years now for for many uh, grape growers and winemakers out there. So there's no surprise that numbers were strong. What were some of the, the key key questions that were asked uh, from exporters and, and attendees? Really, it was it was process-based, I would say. So there were some questions around um, the fact that it's, uh, it's a five-month review. Why is that? And there was a good reason for that. Um, in the Bali case, uh, there was um, a, a three-month plus one-month review timeframe, but they had already kicked the ball off with an application to the Chinese government a little bit earlier than that. So it's pretty consistent with the process that we saw in Bali uh, already. Uh, and there were some other questions as well about some of the other things that are happening in the Chinese market too, uh, around the hold-ups for bulk wine at uh, at the borders, which is a separate issue, but nonetheless still a significant issue for a lot of grape growers and winemakers out there. You touched on this a bit before, Lee McLean, but a Chief Trade Law Officer from DFAT provided an overview of the resolution process. Can you summarise what he said this will, will look like moving forward? Well, um, what I can say is, is exactly what uh, has been put out in the in the media already. So it's a five month review process. So we will support that that process in terms of providing information to um, to the Australian and Chinese governments to to support that analysis, and then really it goes to the Chinese government to to run through what um what they need to do in terms of investigating whether these import duties are uh, um, still needed or not. Now for I think it's very important for us to recognise and for great growers and winemakers to recognise that this isn't a fait accompli. Uh, we need to work through the process and we need to respect that process uh, and it's going to take some time and um, and some work uh, and collaboration between industry and the government, particularly DFAT, as we, uh, as we work through that. What are the next steps for the industry uh, moving forward and marketing as this review gets underway? Yeah, look, great question. So there's a couple of things that we can do immediately and we need to do immediately. So we, we are already starting to collate the information that we, we, we might need to provide that's going to look at things like what's the condition of the market in China at the moment, how's it changed over a couple of years, what is the uh, condition of the Australian industry at the minute, which is pretty well documented, as you know. So we'll be working to, to collate that and, and put, it into a, yeah, put it into a form that's usable. But I think one of the other things that we really do need to continue doing is, is to uh, keep engaging with the Chinese wine industry over the next little while to make sure that we are looking for opportunities to collaborate and work together. Uh, I was in Shanghai a couple of weeks ago where we had the opportunity to meet with the Chinese wine industry. Uh, that was a really warm and constructive meeting and, and really highlighted that despite some of the differences we've had over a couple of years now, uh, there are a lot of common 
challenges and common opportunities for us. So there is a real opportunity there for us to, to strengthen that relationship and do some good work together. What was the mood like during the meeting? Are people pretty positive of, of this next step forward? Yeah, with the Chinese wine industry, it was genuinely warm uh, and, and, and a welcoming meeting. I, I got the sense that there was a, a real sense that Chinese consumers uh, still really have an affinity for Australian wine. They, they enjoy what we make. They tend to enjoy the red wines in particular that Australia is well known for. So I think if we can get back into that market, and as I said, there's still a review process to, to go through, there is a really good chance that, that there will be some, some, some great opportunities for Australian producers in China. But having said that, um, we were at a $1.2 billion value uh, figure at its peak. Um, it's highly unlikely we're going to see that figure return in the short to medium term. So it's not going to be a silver bullet that's going to solve all of our problems either. You know, regardless of whether the China market uh, opens to us again or not, we really do need to continue to work with government, to work with industry, work with our companies to uh, keep the foot on the accelerator in terms of market diversification. We need to keep looking for opportunities in other markets around the world and indeed also markets here at home. Uh, there's good good opportunity for us to grow the grow the, the category here in Australia and make sure that Australian consumers are enjoying Australian wines rather than overseas products. That's Australian Grape and Wine CEO Lee McLean, and he was speaking to Brooke Neindorf. Well, one of the fallouts from China's tariffs on Australian wine is an oversupply of well, particularly red wine for some producers. If you've been in and around the Riverland recently, for example, you may have noticed an increase in storage tanks at wineries. The chair of Australia's Inland Wine Regions Alliance says there won't be enough storage to take in all of next year's vintage. Jim Caddy, whose organisation represents the Riverland, Sunraysia and the Riverina, told Eliza Berlage the potential removal of China's tariffs uh, tariff on wine won't be enough to solve the oversupply issue. Oh, I'm sure if it does come back again, it'll be a help, but it certainly won't solve the current problems that we've got. China, if you have a look at that, back in... 2019, 2020, they used to import somewhere around about 800 million litres total. From That's from the whole world. They're now back to about 285 million litres from the whole world. So they just don't drink and there isn't the demand for imported wine like there used to be. Right, so I guess the discussion about other countries taking Australia's place is that, well, they're not really taking Australia's share. Well, they have what share we would have had, but, yeah, it, they just China doesn't no longer um, imports the same amount of wine that it used to, unfortunately. So if there were to be a, a return and a removal of those tariffs on Australian wine exports to China... How much could Australian wine producers be expected to be able to export? Would it be the same amount or, or how much less? Oh, no. At our peak, we used to be about 20% of their imports, which was equivalent to around about 200,000 tonnes, somewhere about that. So if we can get back to 20% of their imports um, on their current imports, it's probably somewhere around about 60,000 tonnes. And do you think that's so, likely? Oh, um, yeah, quite possible. Yeah, yeah. I I can't see why we won't get back to yeah fifteen or twenty percent of their total imports again. In the uh, interim, there have been uh, a lot of I know just here in the Riverland, I've seen a lot of storage tanks being built, and of course, there's data about just how much of a oversupply and how much wine there is in storage. You know, hundreds and hundreds of Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of wine in storage. What sort of you know solutions are there for this wine in storage? Can this be sold or can it be used? Oh, there's very few. Um, I guess turning it into spirit is probably about the only 
something that they can do or come up with some new innovative product. I think we as an industry have to get a bit more innovative and probably not quite so rigid. You know, maybe we have to go down the track of, I don't know, canned wines, anything. We've just got to give anything a try. I don't think the government will come in and assist us to get rid of that wine lake. We will go into next vintage for red wine in particular, probably about two and a half times more wine than what we can sell for the year. So we'll have about two and a half years supply of wine going into the next. So that's red wine. White wine is a different story. White wine's pretty well balanced. So, you know, there should be reasonable demand for that. And there also should be demand for some specialised reds, things like Grand Ash and Pinot Noir. They should be okay too. So it's not all doom and gloom. Hell of a lot of it is. I don't think there's probably enough storage to take the whole vineyard this year, take the whole crop this year. So once again, unfortunately, I think we'll still be left with grapes on the vines. And so you think it'll be worse than last year? I'm not sure it'll be worse, but it certainly won't be any better than last year, I wouldn't think. And is this across uh, all inland regions that you're hearing this? Yeah, and it's not only us, it's some of the other regions too are similar. You know, regions like Langland Creek and places like that. And if you're not growing that A and B grade fruit, you know, in some of the other regions, probably going to be restricted and contracts aren't getting rolled over. And so is this uh, because a, a winery is just not building any more tanks as well? No, no. It's very expensive little proposition building tanks. And uh, if you don't think you can sell it, it's not much sense in just putting wine in there. If you don't think you can sell it in the end, you're better off not taking How long can some of that wine be stored for? And still be good. The wine is still fine. It's still sound. It loses some of its freshness after a couple of years in tank, especially the inland region wine. It's made to be drunk within 18 months or two years. That's how they produce it. Whereas the regions in the cooler regions, they're sort of, they get better once they get two or three years old. So it can be stored indefinitely, really. It just, the flavour disappears, but it certainly doesn't go off. As Australian Inland Wine Regions Alliance Chair Jim Caddy and he's speaking with Eliza Berlage. I'm Selena Green with you on this Tuesday afternoon and it's just going on 17 minutes to one. So how to deal with this glut of wine? One method the state government is looking to is a rebate scheme it's announced today for wineries willing to trial a plant growth regulator. They hope it will help producers reduce the amount of wine they're making from their crops, save money, and without having to pull vines out of the ground. Claire Scriven is the Minister for Primary Industries. Uh, Minister, thanks for speaking with me this afternoon. Good to be with you. Thanks, Selena. Are we uh, aware there is an oversupply of, uh, of wine at the moment, of red wine, and even if China does resume trade and taking that wine, it seems that this is uh, going to be an issue. This rebate is something that you hope will help alleviate some of that? That's right. So this is an opportunity for growers in many ways to, to take a breath and not make quick business decisions that might not be what is in their long-term interests. So this is an opportunity for them to rest their vineyards uh, with a a subsidy to be part of a trial, which has indicated at this stage that there's uh, a way to significantly reduce their vineyard management costs while they don't have a market for their 2024 crop. So ethophon is something that is used as a, a plant growth regulator. And research from Saudi has indicated that uh, use of ethophon can actually reduce the crop load by up to 90% in, uh, in the first year. It's a three-year study. So what that means is that uh, there's reduced costs uh, in terms of fertigation, water application, disease sprays, and also the other regular inputs 
Uh, and indications at this stage also are that in some cases, growers may even be able to avoid harvesting those blocks. So that would be another significant additional saving. So I guess a whole opportunity to actually um, rest their vines and what's really important about this is it's shown that there hasn't been then an ongoing impact on the vines going forward. So I was up in Riverland a few weeks ago and, uh, and some of the people I was talking to was, were talking about uh, concerns that they wouldn't then be able to plant a crop uh, you know, the year after. But what this is showing at this stage is that um, there's the, the foliage is maintained uh, even when the crop load is reduced. And of course, it's that maintenance of the healthy foliage, which is vital for the vine to store energy and, and set it up for the following season. As I do imagine, that would be one of the first questions that growers would ask if I'm going to use this regulator and put this on my vines. Uh, you know, is there re- sound research showing that it is not going to have an ongoing detrimental effect? That you know, once I do want to ramp up my production again, that these uh, this will still work. So uh, we need to acknowledge that this is the first year of a three-year research study, which continues through until 2025. Uh, but what the research has shown at the moment is that um, the, the foliage is maintained, it's still healthy. Uh, when it's used, of course, at the uh, appropriate time, which is the end of flowering and, and in accordance with recommendations that uh, are on the PERSA website. So the vine will store its energy to set itself up for the following season, um, but the growers will be able to reduce uh, their input costs um, by up to $2,000 a hectare, uh, and then in addition also have the rebate for the actual um, ethophone for up to 1,000 hectares per ABN. And this would be your preference to grape growers perhaps ripping out vines uh, to reduce what they are producing? So I think what we've found in the past with vine pulling is that it's not necessarily done in a way that supports either the grower or the industry long term. So that's why this is such an important option for growers to consider. It will give them that breathing space to be able to uh, reduce their costs now uh, without necessarily impacting their uh, their future production uh, and be able to make those decisions, uh, not looking at necessarily at ha- them having to you know, sell assets or, or pull their vines, but does give them a different alternative to consider. So, so I hope that it's, um, you know, it's something that is considered by the industry uh, and we want to un- make sure that the vineyards don't take drastic actions that they can have a choice such as this uh, while they uh, you know, work out what their future business decisions will be. So how will the, or how does the rebate work? So um, the rebate will be for um, those who are using it as, uh, well, as part of the trial uh, and they can get a $40 rebate for each hectare that they spray and that'll be up to 1,000 hectares per ABN. But if they go to the, uh, the PERSA website and type in vineyard rebate, they'll be able to find all the details there. Minister, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You're very welcome. Thank you. Claire Scriven, the Minister for Primary Industries and Regional Development. It is 13 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Are you with Selena Green? When was the last time you popped a bottle of champagne? Proper champagne, the French variety, not sparkling wine from somewhere else. Australians, turns out we love champagne. We are the sixth largest export market for champagne in the world. Last year, Australia imported a record-breaking 10.5 million bottles of it. So some of you are drinking a lot of champagne. Uh, To be called champagne, wine must meet very specific and very fiercely defended specifications. It's something overseen by something called the Committee Champagne. They believe Australia's wine regions 
can learn from them about protecting the name of our unique wine growing regions. For the first time, a delegation from Committee Champagne and the Wine Origins Alliance, of which it is a member, well, they're in Australia. Specifically, they're in South Australia's Barossa region. Charles Guamer is the Director General of Committee Champagne. I spoke with Charles earlier and asked him to explain what Committee Champagne does. Uh, so Comité Champagne is an organization which has been created by the French law 82 years ago to preserve the collective interests of all the wine growers and all the champagne makers in the Champagne region of France. And basically, we have three missions in enhancing the quality of champagne wines uh, by making them as uh, sustainable as possible. Mission number two is to um, organize the uh, economy of the Champagne region. And the third mission is to uh, protect and to promote the name Champagne, which is uh, the collective uh, asset of all the Champagne growers and Champagne houses. A lot of people would have heard the word Champagne or the name Champagne and perhaps once upon a time had an idea that it was pretty much any could be put on anything. It is very strict, the rules around what can and cannot be called Champagne. It is a region of France. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Champagne is an appellation of origin. So it's, it's a name that designates only uh, sparkling wines produced in the, in the specific region of France, which is uh, 100 miles uh, northeastern of Paris. And those wines must follow a number of rules set by our organization uh, that ensure the consumers that when they get a, a wine uh, named Champagne, not only does it come from a specific region, but it also has a, a number of specific character, characteristics and qualities. How big is the Champagne appellation? How many houses and growers do you represent? Uh, so it's a very small region because it represents only 3% of the overall uh, planted region of France. But it's a, a great community with uh, 21,000 wine growers and about 350 Champagne houses. And so the interesting thing is the wine growers are producing 90% of the grapes, while the champagne houses are selling 75% of, of the wines uh, worldwide. And so you understand that uh, each of the community needs the others. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons of our organization is to create uh, a good coordination among those two uh, families. How important is it to protect and defend the, the name, the brand, and, and the quality of what is Champagne? This is very important for the collectivity of the producers because uh, they have made a lot of efforts to uh, let the, the world know about Champagne wines. But it, this is also very important for the consumers because this is the very first element that allow consumers to know what, what they will get in their glass when they pour a glass, uh, a glass of champagne. And this is, once again, one of the main tools to create value for, for the collectivity of the producers. Uh, Charles, what brings you to Australia for this uh, visit? Because I understand it's the first time there's been a delegation of this type. Yeah, indeed. So uh, two objectives. The first objective is to get a better sense of what uh, the, the Australian market for champagne is, because this is uh, our sixth most important market in the world. So this is a very important market for our producers and traders. So uh, understanding a little bit more what, uh, what is the market. But the second and probably the most important uh, objective was also to meet with a number of um, uh, wine regions of Australia, 
which are um, dear colleagues from the Wine Origins Alliance, which is an alliance that we have created almost uh, 20 years ago to uh, get a better protection of uh, wine place names worldwide, but also to um, remove trade barriers to wines, because wine is a product that travels worldwide, which is also sold by small and medium-sized companies, which uh, hardly overcome uh, trade barriers. This wine uh, alliance, uh, Champagne is part of that. Where else is part of it? Champagne was one, one of the founding members and uh, other regions from, uh, from Europe, from the United States, from South uh, Africa are members. But we have also a number of dear members from Australia and in particular Barossa, uh, which is um, one of the uh, very active members of the uh, Wine Origins Alliance. Uh, because Barossa um, is um, not only a, a very renowned name, but also a, a widely exported uh, wine. So from your experience within Champagne, it is important for places like the Barossa and other wine-growing regions to really own that name and pr- protect it quite fiercely and protect the quality of what can be attached to that name? Yeah, this is very important. This is key. This is key for the community, but once again, it, this is also key for the consumers because these names are an, an important portion of the trust that consumers put uh, in, in, in the wine. And I'm, I wanted to ask you, Charles, before I uh, let you go, uh, you mentioned there that Australia is a big drinker of champagne. We, we clearly love champagne by the sounds of it. Do the French drink Australian wine, our, our sparkling wine? Is it much well known in France? You know, France has become once again, uh, for the first time since uh, a number of years, number one world wine world producer in the last year. Um, so French people mainly drink uh, sh- uh, French wines, uh, I would say, unfortunately. But um, I know that um, uh, foreign wines, and in particular Australian wines, are more and more imported. And in um, all the good restaurants and, and wine shops, uh, you can now find um, imported wines, including um, uh, Australian wines, which I think is very good because uh, one of the uh, great things about wines is uh, diversity. That is uh, Charles Gumer there. He is the Director General of Committee Champagne, which is a member of the Wine Origins Alliance, uh, along with the Napa Valley in the United States, in Bordeaux, in France as well. South Australia's Barossa and McLaren Vale Wine Districts are also members of that alliance. And the CEO of Barossa Australia, Scott Hazeldean, explained why. I think, you know, on the face of it, you might think we're, we're competitors in the global wine world, um, but I think you know the industry is so much stronger when we recognise our uniqueness and our differences uh, there as, as well. Um, and I think both of us are just after a level and fair playing field for everybody to do business in there as, as well. So there's some genuine issues of commonality uh, between all the regions to come together. From the Barossa's perspective and your producers that you represent, how important it is to protect that name, to know that if something is going out there and people are seeing this is a Barossa wine, I know I'm going to get something quality and, and to protect that? Yeah, really important. I think the Barossa has uh, you know, spent decades building up a global reputation for quality um, and, and the name counts for so much. Uh, it's our interaction with the consumer. Um, it, it's a level of trust that they put on in us as, as well. Um, so really, we don't want that degraded in any way at all and really keen to protect it at all costs.
And what are you hoping to learn from this delegation about how to go about that, given obviously Champagne has quite a history of, of being very protective around that name? Um, you know, what, what are you hoping that the Barossa and Australian wine regions can learn from this? Yeah, I think, you know, that opportunity just to exchange knowledge on all fronts and shared experiences uh, is really crucial um, in that as well, where we can come together um, uh, as a body uh, to to delve into these issues, um, but where we can glean stuff just in casual conversations. Um, And so the ability for us to sit down, break some bread and... uh, have lunch, share some wines is as important as actually sitting down formally, I think. Have you had a chance to look at some of the differences and similarities to what Champagne is doing to what you're doing in the Barossa? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this is the great thing about the Alliance here as well, that it genuinely really celebrates those differences there as well. But as always, we're a relatively small industry. There's lots of similarities in there as well. But I think that celebration of the uniqueness of place um, and the uniqueness of those individual patches of dirt uh, around the world um, that are cared for by, you know, people uh, are, are the thing that brings us together. Yeah. And wherever consumers are, do you think that is something they are looking to more where it, it might not necessarily be it's a Shiraz or it's a Cabernet Sauvignon or it's a Riesling? It is, it is the name very much of the region uh, more and more these days that consumers look to and then have an expectation around? I think that plays a really significant part. You know, I, I think consumers are in interrogating um, the products more and more um, from place names uh, to what's in them to how they're made uh, as well. Um, but the name and the region that it's sourced from is absolutely crucial in that piece. Scott Hazeldean there. He is the CEO of Barossa Australia. Can you believe it? The sixth largest importer of champagne in the world. We Australians, 10.5 million bottles last year. I didn't get any of those. (laughs) Someone's got a very, very impressive cellar somewhere out there and enjoying some French champagne for sure. It is two minutes to one. You're with Selena Green. Sonia Feldhoff will be on your radio this afternoon. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Selena. I'm more of a rosé girl, I've got to say. Yeah, cheap and cheerful is my kind of vibe. (laughs) (laughs) You're easy to please. Absolutely. Uh, Give Selena all the dregs. That's what we're saying. Now, um, when it comes to, um, you know, when you talk to people and sometimes they can have said a whole paragraph and you have no idea what they said because there's lots of synergy and, um, you know, simpatico and there's lots of jargon uh, in there that makes things almost uh, murky and impossible to understand. Well, today's the day we're trying to get rid of the jargon. What's with all the jargon and how about saying things more simply? That's what we're looking at uh, today on the program. I think we could all benefit from that one. Yes. Some real concern about energy drinks. Now, I don't know if you ever take any of those drinks that give you a bit of a shot of caffeine. Um, Yeah, and some of them, poof, you know, if you're not careful. And they're the regulated ones. Well, the reason we're talking about energy drinks today is because – SA Health Inspectors have found some of our shops in the CBD selling some of these drinks with caffeine at almost twice the level that's regulated here in Australia. Um, and they're really warning teenagers particular, particularly who might be having these um, to keep them going ahead of exam time to watch out on this front. So we'll be talking about energy drinks first up on the program today. Love to hear from you on that front. Thanks, Sonia. Have a great show. Thank you all. Sonia Feldhoff, she'll be with you for Afternoons. I've been Selena Green. Thanks so much for your company today. It's just going on time for the news. It's now one o'clock. 
To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone, search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.